I mean, the system's geared to divide us, all right? That's what neocons will do for their masters. Mm. And that's why they like eating shit. Mm. That's what you gotta do, you gotta ask. Name a price. I have no price. Hi. 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 How are we? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Good. Pretty good. Pretty good. It's a nice Friday. Um, and we're back every Friday with the Survival Guide on Radio Skid Row in 88.9. Yes. With Lorna and... Joel. And we're alive. For part two of the Survival Guide. Thank you for joining us. Um, if you're new to the show, this is Survival Guide, um, a show hosted by Joel Spring and Lorna Munro. Um, where we're talking about gentrification in Sydney um, and its parallels to ongoing colonisation in Australia and the history um, that we have experienced as Indigenous people living in the city and across the nation. Mm, and giving you the tools to survive that based on how our ancestors have survived and are still here. Yes, yes. There's lots of things going on, and there's lots of things that have been going on. Um, this past week, on the weekend, we had an event out on Cockatoo Island for the Biennale. Um, myself, one part of Future Method, and my business partner, Genevieve Murray, um, had the privilege of designing the space at the Biennale, Superposition Studio, which is the public programming space. Um, a lot of the artwork in the installation um, touched on the themes of gentrification and displacement in our city, and mm. we had a nice panel on mm. Saturday afternoon. It was really nice. Mm-hmm. Lorna was there. Yeah, I was, apparently. I don't recognise this voice. Just um, disclaimer. <laughs> no jokes. Um, yeah, I was there. It was a deadly yarn. It was a deadly um, space to be in with um, Linda and Meg. Keg. Keg, sorry. Um, and <clears throat> that was a really exciting discussion that... We'll definitely spur on more discussions, I guess. And we've got a bit of a recording um, to share with you guys. So I just wanted to just bring it back to our theme this week, neoliberalism. What is that? Um, And this episode will be really breaking that down and explaining neoliberalism. I have a really... How it kind of intersects and how it has intersected with... Um, a black value system and mm-hmm. black economics in mm-hmm. Australia since um, arrival and ongoing colonisation. Uh, I think we hear the term neoliberalism or capitalism even, um, mm-hmm. which is you know neoliberalism is a or neoliberalisation is a um, is a mechanism or a project of capitalism. I think we experience those things and those terms can be quite confusing. But what we're trying to do today is unpack how those things intersect with every part of your everyday life right now um, to mm. maybe better understand the world that you live in, the streets that you live in and navigate through to mm. be able to combat the weapons being used against you. Mm. And I guess bringing it back to the black economics, our value for culture, our value systems that we hold in this country and how these newer Things have eroded uh, a lot of our systems that have been functioning and sustaining life for many, many thousands, if not millions, of years. Exactly. Should we well, catch yeah. To it? So you, you and you and Linda had a really nice yarn um, on Saturday that I think we're going to play a little bit of um, around some of these things, and we're just going to cut straight to that. How do we navigate writing rules? law down that has never been written you know these are the things that we have 
that no one has ever, ever taken from us. We've got a lot of work to do as blackfellas to not slip into the benefits of what can be seen as benefits of colonisation. When it can be really easy to, you know, blow all our money on flash clothes and go and party up and enjoy that lifestyle. But while we're doing that, we waste the time that is so precious to us to get our peoples back to a position of empowerment. I think we've got a lot of issues around money. We deserve to wear warm fucking clothes because our possum skin coats were taken away from us and we were given blankets. Um, you know, we have all these things. So it's like, well, I deserve money too. I deserve to be able to look like I can not freeze to death. Um, you know, and having shoes for my son because that boy's growing at a rate that I've never ever seen before and I've worked in schools and stuff like that, you know? How do I, as a single black mother, while all this is going on, how do I sustain our lives? How do I keep us fed? You know, because I do a lot of work for free and I educate a lot of people for free. And I know a lot of you followers, you know, you've already had this talk. I've already talked to you about leveraging privilege that you have. And, um, you know, I've been told, but we're poor too, but it's like, but you're not generationally poor like my people. My son's never going to be able to get a job in this community. I can't get a job in this community. I'm overskilled. Do you think that any of these organisations will look at me and go, Lorna, as a perspective, we can mentor her? They don't because the questions that I ask means that everybody's got to start thinking about what goes into their pocket. And where's it all going? Who's actually being fed here? Well, everybody has these jobs in this community. What's actually reaching the ground? How much money? I've been talking about doing a black audit for the last 20 years. How much money has been pumped into this community, Redfern? That's on us too when it comes to, when we talk about decolonisation and that, that yarn has a company. And we're talking about it without saying the yeah. word. Yeah. Mm. Um, but when, I'm sure everyone's heard that, that decolonisation needs to start within in the self before we can <laughs> articulate or express or expect for that to come out in the work that we do or the way that we operate, either as a, fam a kinship group, family group, or more broadly as a community, mm. let alone as a whole collection, a collective of black fellows, or even non-Aboriginal people within, within Australia. Um, but when we think about our actual, like that decolonisation or breaking down that colonial process comes back to those values. And, and for black fellows, money is a huge part of that. Like from, from having nothing to all of a sudden reaching a point, I don't know where it is where we reach, that around the, our 20s where we've either gotten a job or worked out a way to support ourselves, um, that we haven't come from, we come from ancestral ties that have gone for thousands of generations without a need for money. That our, our systems of, of trade allowed for us to have the things that we needed without having to have the mullah in our hands mm. and, and we're in that shift. For me, when I find things tricky, I look to my old people. A lot of things that i found, I might have questions that nobody can answer, but if I start to look back into language and kinship structures, I will find an answer. Um, and that's very much my process. Um, but just with what you said about value and money, um, and I guess, you know, I, because I work with a lot of poor white people, and um, when they can't give me money, I'm just like, well, what, what can you give? What can you do right now to help me out so that we can both do a good job at this right now? We might not have had money, but we had value, and that value was placed upon natural resources. So say, for example, in my language, my mother's language, in Wiradjuri country, um, the word that we use for money now is walang. When you look at where walang comes from, walang is a word to describe rock 
or something of, of, of trait. So that's either for me, that's either like a piece of ochre, that's either like something really, really special or ceremonial significant that you would give to someone to honor them and to make sure that, you know, the spirits were all together in that one room by having all of these things here. You know, but after white people came to Rattray country, we started using that word that we used for special rock or sacred rock for money. Um, so, you know, I think that that really recognises the value that we hold um, within our resources and within the social, you know, the kinship stuff, the reason why I would give somebody something in the first place. Because you don't just give stuff to anybody that you don't know. Unfortunately, that's what the society is kind of built around, right? Um, so I just wanted to bring it back that, to that Aboriginal ideas of value um, placed upon placed upon the earth and placed upon resources um, and, you know, and knowledge. And I guess, you know, being in Sydney, coming from Sydney, knowing the history, that is why everybody should be learning about what happened here. Because what happened here is just the start for everywhere else, and that's colonisation as well as built environment. And, um, you know, in the next 10 years, Wollongong and that whole South Coast area is going to be an extension of Sydney. To draw it back while I'm here to raise some attention back that I have two developments that are causing some real challenges at the moment um, that are beyond the point of that sense of helplessness that, um, so to share that here. One is at Bass Point at Shell Harbour. Does anybody know yeah. that area at all? So the point there um, within the Illawarra has, there were 12 midden sites located there on one point. So for anybody who does know the significance of middens in the area, that is a over 20,000 year old gathering place um, at one point and the government approved, state government approved the development of the marina right before the entrance mm. of the, um, the at, at Bass Point which is under construction at the moment and it's horrific. So when I speak of these things around the shifts regionally that are not necessarily urban gentrification but the destruction of our places that's one key example. The second is at Sandon Point, where we've got over 6,000-year-old burial ground there, with a, a Stockland housing development <laughs> right on top of that burial ground. And this has been a, a, a battle for the last 15 to 20 years, um, where it's been a high-profile battle, and still the houses go up, like right, right next to our burial places. So the, the challenges that we talk here are not just about that social gentrification, but culturally, that our places are really immediately at risk of being destroyed. And once our places are gone, what is our culture without our country? And everybody has a responsibility and obligation to be custodians to, to whatever land it is that they're staying on. So, you know, students of history, look into it. And those are the kind of things that we need to value and uphold and to further explore and not question or doubt ourselves because we walk our land. You fellas are foreigners in our land. And there's strength in that. And that's what got our old people through. The first wave of colonization was the fact that no matter what happens, no matter what's built, as long as our people are walking this land, we're always gonna connect to it. We're always going to feel it. We're always going to be able to read things that other people don't know how to see or interpret. We also get told, you know, that a lot of our methodologies, epistemologies of knowing aren't valuable within 
wide institutions of learning. That's why it's so important for us to build our own institutions. And again, what goes back to the Black Power Movement and people like Aunt Isabel, people like Uncle Bill, people like Chica Dixon, who was an elderly statesman who actually went into schools looking for prospective students. And that was a long line of, um, you know, that was a long line of, of people that have been doing that for a very, very long time. We've inherited the legacy. And if that's all I've got in this life, nobody can ever, ever, ever take that from me. It may appear that way, but again, you know, we're talking about structural things. Whereas Aboriginal methodologies and epistemologies and ways of knowing and even communicating is something that, something that, you know, we're still exploring how to measure these things. We're still exploring how to document things appropriately. We're still having conversations about how the act of writing down language that has never ever been written down or has only been written down by white people who have messed it up I mean, we heard some really amazing stuff going on in that conversation um, between Lorna and um, the amazing Linda Kennedy um, around sort of post or no pre pre arrival value systems and and the way that those things have um, manifest uh, in today, but also. Um, with what we're seeing with the kind of uh, overdevelopment of country and overdevelopment of cities, um, the importance of kind of returning back to those things. And um, I just, I mean, I'd like to ask Lorna kind of, you touched on it, we, we heard about it in the audio then, but I think it's really nice to refresh on, on your own perspective about, around those value systems and kind of how, I guess, colonisation and then capitalism as a product of it um, mm. kind of erode those things. Mm. Um, I, I've, I'm gonna, I want to start with a big long-winded story, but I'm really going to try not to. So long story short, I am always reminded when talking about um, these kind of subjects about how um, other Indigenous peoples uh, responded when they learnt that Aboriginal people didn't build structures. And they was kind of like talking to me like, you know, well, your people are really primitive because you just didn't have these things. And me at the age that I was, I was like 19 then, and I remember just sort of realising that, hey, that's actually a desecration of our mother. That's actually, you know, a huge disrespect to everything that we hold true and hold value to, which is the earth. And, you know, you never... We was always taught as kids, you never, um, you always leave a place the way you found it. And that's to make sure that other people will have that same experience in that space. Mm. And when I'm talking about that space, I'm usually talking about rivers mm. and, um, you know, landscapes and natural environments. Um, you know, so I just, I, I always bring it back to that about how our people were really in tune with their relationship with the earth and with water and with you know resources natural resources mm. and i guess that's that's where there's this um divide and that's where there's this um kind of taking it to another area that is a really foreign idea in this country um and which mm. is development and yep. which is building structures in place that has nothing to do with the creation stories and the people of that place, um, you know, and 
and as as Linda said, you know, if we've got no place, then what is that culture? Mm. Um, mm. You know, so these are the things that I think about. These are the things that I, as someone that is really interested in decolonizational methodologies and how do we unpack all of this? How do we undo colonization within our own thinking mm. and being and mm. living and talking and relating to one another? And it comes back to that. Yeah, comes. So it's you know, it's it's almost it's almost a um. I don't know. It, it it comes across in a lot of people's work, and I mean, this is this is in inside of a lot of scholarship of other indigenous people across the world. I mean, there's Teage Alfred for one, who is a Mohawk man from um, Canada, uh, or you know, the the nation state that is Canada. Now known as yes, Canada. exactly. <laughs> um, and, and his, you know, his he he writes he writes around the ideas of indigenous resurgence. Um, the importance of revitalizing language and, mm-hmm. and 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 protocols around nature and the rivers mm-hmm. and and because he he's from that country around around the the riverways and he, he's all you know it's almost it's almost like so simple that it's obvious but he's just like you know it's it's the main struggle it's the mm-hmm. land it's always about the land and that's where that's di- that's the direct it's the direct um, vehicle through which we find strength and 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 our identity but it's also it's the contested part of the entire narrative when you talk about colonization it's 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 the reason that people were displaced and people were stolen and 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 languages erased and and to to fragment and to destabilize the title and and the relationship the ownership um, but not in the way that we think about ownership now in a Western sense, but a different custodianship without being too, I don't know, um, simplistic or naive or um, romantic. It's always been about the land and it, and it continues to be so. And I think the way that those things manifest today, the way that we see in the built environment a kind of negation of that, or a implanting of a different language about um, the way that a country or a colony like this um, exists is really, really interesting because, you know, it's the stuff that maybe you don't think about all the time and you walk around the streets every day and you don't really take in that the sandstone building is the sandstone building where the sandstone was quarried from a place and stolen. And I earlier, earlier this week we had a great um, opportunity to talk at Sydney Uni with... Um, Dallas Rogers, um, who is a academic there, who also has a podcast mm-hmm. called um, um, City Road Podcast, out of the Wilkinson Building at Sydney Uni, and we actually got to have a nice chat with um, Jennifer, who is a academic uh, professor in architectural history, um, where we talked about a few things around gentrification and the economics around the colony, and mm-hmm. I think. Um, we're going to play some of that now. Can I just mention that she's you sit in one of a couple of her classes as well? Yes, yeah, so she's my she's my history lecturer, and we hadn't actually had a proper conversation until this conversation, which was really nice actually to to be able to engage and you know be that that visibility of mm. her being like, oh, I so see you're not just one of these kids who walks in and yeah, you know, doing something else. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, I try, but um, yeah, I, I will back to that. Here's the interview with um Jennifer. Let's do it. What comes to your mind when you think of the word white? I mean, the word white is a color, right? And I'm an architect and a historian, so... But I also think, as a person of color, I think I'm not white. I'm yellow, actually. I am not brown, I am not red, I'm not white. It's a color that I actually 
when I was younger, growing up in the United States, I aspired to be white, I think because I came from a very democratic Western country. Mm. Um, so it was like the dominant paradigm. Mm. So when I think of what I think of homogeneity, I think of um, hegemonic yep. issues yep. generally. What do you think of the word colonization? What, what, what does that bring to mind in this context? I think, yeah, as an American living in Sydney, uh, maybe my perspective is slightly different, but I do feel the effects of colonization have lingered in Sydney longer than they would have, say, in the United States or other countries, where I feel like a lot of the Australian the cultural heritage is so much embedded in that narrative of the first landing, Botany Bay, 1788, and... Even the sandstone buildings, right, that make up the core of the CBD, uh, it all speaks of, like, pretty much we are a colonial territory. And it, even though Australia has become its own nation in its own right, and it's certainly kind of reached out from there, but uh, what is it? The, the built environment speaks otherwise. It's so very much more this kind of Commonwealth British vocabulary. Mm. Whereas in the States, you know, we just knock it all down. Feel like mm. It doesn't exist. And it, and it seems to both the, the history of Australia seems to linger on in those buildings right because they are made of sandstone and you know if you're a tourist you come to sydney the first thing they tell you is about the sandstone they don't tell you about like how they acquired the land who was dispossessed who was killed the mass violence cultural repatriation all that stuff who's, it, it's who's, just more like where does the sandstone come from it's like natural mm. right. and whose and whose stories were probably a part of that sandstone and who were carved into that sandstone well, who actually who mined the sandstone so these were all laborers convicts and also indigenous peoples who mm. were forced into labor. Mm. So, you know, it's a, all these stories that get kind of... Yeah, buried. absolutely. In terms of your experience of Sydney, how do you feel about gentrification? Yeah, I think it's it's a shame, I think, that gentrification worldwide, so it's not just simply in Sydney and Australia, gentrification destroys a lot of local fabric. It destroys a lot of local condi- uh, conditions and local community members. And so it is... Uh, disappointing to see the effects of neoliberalism at play at the local level. It's really just, you know, it's, it's not only, I think, disappointing, but also you feel that uh, all of the local character of these neighborhoods being sucked dry. So whether it is the terrace houses of Redfern, the rich you know, history of Radio Redfern, or some of the communities based mm. there, or to places, you know, um, towards the Blue Mountains, or, you know, some of those further sites out west of Sydney, you know, every, if everything becomes the same, that's really horrible. Mm. And I feel like, but everyone's also complicit in that gentrification, right? Yes. So if you go, like we discussed with capitalism or neoliberalism, you go and you buy your stuff at Target or at Kmart or Costco, or if you go and you decide that you want to go buy your biscuit or your pie at the local franchise, like that's all part of the same stuff, right? So people pin this onto companies like Miravac and Meriton, uh, and they are the obvious enemies, but I think the more uh, nuanced enemies are the things that are the capitalist, you know, rituals that we all participate mm. in, mm. which is like, that's convenience. There's like lower rent prices, right? So people do buy into it because they feel like they get an economic benefit. Really what it does is it just increases those uh, effects on mass of gentrification. Right? Mm. So you have all of these communities that used to have all these unique characters and features and diverse community members and, you know, this, was, this happened in the U.S. after World War II. This is white flight. So basically, once white families leave, everyone gets freaked out. So they decide to move. And all of a sudden, it just becomes like one, you know, mono mm-hmm. community. So and that's also the creation of things like, you know, housing estates, housing blocks, ghettos, all of those things that a lot of city planners fear. But that's due to this kind of 
Yeah, it's, it's, and it's a structural, it's a structural con- issue. I think at the at the base of it that we, you know, things can be rectified, and it's, I think they become, like geographically kind of placed as issues. I think. I think one thing to fear is the New York loft, and I'll give you a global example of this. It's like in cities in China, for example, and I mean outside of places like Beijing or Shanghai and Hong Kong, is like the the local cities. Okay. A lot of local citizens do no longer they no longer want the traditional you know Chinese courtyard house. You really want they want the New York style open mm. plan. You don't have to be in China. You're actually in New York. That's highly disturbing. But because that taste, that consumption, you know, via these neoliberal, neoliberal markets is cultivated. So people who don't live in the West still want a Western lifestyle, and they see gentrification as being a good hmm. thing. This is really interesting. So that's a double-sided coin. So you can't just say, okay, yeah, people are like victims. They're not victims. They're actually participating in this willingly. As we say, as we kind of we coined on the show last week, um, which I think is a pretty interesting term. Is, um, your flat white has a black history. Um, <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I may um, have to borrow that. Maybe sticker. Exactly. Put it on my door. Um, what's your kind of definition or perspective on the idea of neoliberalism? Well, the kind of shorthand definition, right, is the opening of free markets, right? So that's the kind of shorthand that critical theorists, political theorists kind of use. But what's interesting is that with this opening of free markets, there's a leveling of choices. Right? So if you are Chinese and you're a citizen or if you're Australian, you don't necessarily have to buy a terrace house. You could buy a New York loft built into your terrace house. Right? So, and most importantly, the outsourcing of labor. I think this is something to really, really make a big deal about, which is contributing to your question about gentrification, which is that we can now outsource things to countries who pay very minimal wages to workers who can barely live. The effects of free markets are actually dangerous because in the sense that any kind of labor can be bought and at a very, very low rate. And so things like, you know, your New York style loft in Beijing or whatever, or your, you know, prefab house here in Australia, which I also have equipped with, you know, like people think it's about cost effectiveness and sustainability, but it's not because it's also about neoliberal markets because yeah. you're paying someone to cheaply cut your steel and make your glass and make your windows so that you have a really fabulous modernist house. So have you thought about where the labor comes from? Exactly. I mean, that was a great little chat that we got to have with Jennifer um, over at UCID. I think kind of it's ironic um, given, you know, the kind of colonial heritage of these institutions, these big sandstone buildings, that there are still little pockets where you can find other people of colour who are critical of the system mm-hmm. and trying to do what they can inside of it for the better um, or at least be critical of it so that people can have that discussion. And I think... You know, that and, and, and as well as the conversation that we got to have on Cockatoo Island was about offering up different perspectives for people so that they could engage in the discussion of their own um, complicit nature within gentrification and um, capitalism, colonisation ongoing for the last 250 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, what did you think of Jennifer? So many things. I don't even know where to start. I remember while we was talking, um, while we was talking, while Jennifer was talking, we was having our own yarn. Um, and I was just making notes about um, being complicit in these systems. Um, and I think that a huge thing that kind of 
doesn't really get talked about is the intergenerational poverty, Mm. um, you know, that we as Aboriginal people, that we as descendants of dispossessed people are now dealing with, um, you know, which keeps us in a cycle locked to to participating in these capitalist ventures. Um, You know, we eat shit food because that's all we can afford. Mm. We wear shit clothes because that's all we can afford. You know, um, and, and the fact that the the labour market, the way that it operates now, is that people are employed more and more in precarious positions, and and that's not even speaking about um, the kind of systemic racism that plays out in Australia's employment industry, but mm-hmm. the ways in which people have people actually the the market drives for competition at such a rate that you get an e- you get a better return and you get better prices out of undercutting people and making sure that they don't actually work enough to make a living wage that's why you see people living living in the middle of the city who have to work two to three jobs just to you know get by mm-hmm. um the, the the way that the system works for a lot of people and not the privileged few and probably some privileged listeners now who are able to um, live comfortably on the, with their job. But the way that the kind of system um, puts people in precarious positions, it, it definitely locks you into mm. a mode of operating and you you have no, exactly, you have no choice but to participate within the capitalist system. Mm. You have no recourse, no way of actually carving out your own space and, 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 and rallying against it um, and fighting against it. And, you know, God forbid, you know, Sometimes you just get so tired by the time you actually do, you feel like you've earned what you've done and you don't feel like you can really battle it anymore. And that's the, that's the kind of, that's the, that's because a kind of more ro- sadder narrative in, within the conversation. Mm. But um, I really like how, um, you know, Jennifer was talking about um, uh, uh, buying, um, you know, participating in capitalist ventures, um, buying these cheap things. Um, and I guess what we can take from this and bringing it back to how neoliberalism has eroded black economics is to source black companies, buy from black companies, buy from black family-run organisations. And um, this is why, you know, this community is such an important thing to look at mm. is because... A lot of these ideas and and really successful business models that we all work on today throughout the rest of the country and we're all being introduced to when we work in the Aboriginal industry, Mm. um, which is a non-profit, you know, government sector as well. Um, These are all the things that we are introduced to. Um, And, you know, that was birthed here. Um, that was the dream for this community is for them to have some kind of economic independence mm. um, to to live to live sustainably um, and not being dictated to by the state governments mm. because you know they knew about the history of past policies and things like that and what it has done and how it has locked us into this poverty and has um, you know created these situations and I guess. Again, this is why this is all so important for for you guys, for our listeners, for our audience, um, to understand these things um, as we're doing them, and and just you know pushing for people to to buy from black businesses mm. as well, um, and to where you ba- can find them or to you know 
try and engage with black organizations and, and see what you can do to, to help not only not only give as little as you can, but to actually leverage your privilege to ensure that there might be more access for Indigenous people and all these other things. I think Jennifer gave a gave a pretty broad and quite a quite a quite a, a, a workable definition for um, neoliberalism, kind of as a concept. I think it comes up a lot in discussion around housing and construction and retail and, and just wider economic kind of concerns within Australia, but you know also globally. Mm. Um, and it's a really complicated term. It's mm, it, it it, it's hard it's hard to unstitch it from what it what it's quite difficult to define. It's, it's like is it philosophy? Is it policy? Is it economic theory? Is it ideology? Is it is it a moral doctrine? Is it a way that we um, intersect and, and deal with people in our lives? Um, and, and I mean, fundamentally, I guess it's it comes. I mean, it's clearly it's a it's a mechanism. It's a project kind of couched within the idea of capitalism, which is you know. From the days, you know, Das Kapital, um, Karl Marx, kind of, you know, growth for growth's sake, and the, um, I mean, this is Marxist theory as opposed to, you know, like Marxism within a working class kind of mm. framework, um, which are d- deeper things that I don't know really enough about to really get into it here with you. Mm. But I think when we talk about the idea of li- neoliberalism, it's a kind of broader philosophical idea around how we manage money and and, and its management, its management of economic structures and economic regulations, um, which states that markets, markets are the best and most efficient basis of allocating resources between people. It's radically anti-state. It thinks that the ideology of it is kind of that it insists that public institutions and governments are inherently inefficient and they need to be eroded. They need to be bypassed, if you can, um, and made and minimised so that you can open up the uh, flow of, of capital mm-hmm. and, and allow for the market to kind of inherently do these things. And I think kind of a, a better working definition for this ideology is better to think about it as a process. You know, um, it's, it's about market, it's about regulating the market and restructuring the way that money flows. It's, it's, it's a product of capitalism, it sits within it, but it's a way in which it's different to capitalism because capitalism in and of itself in theory operates um, kind of... You know, it, it at least operates with a, a idea that it's trying to find the efficient solution to um, di- like distributing resources. Neoliberalism, in and of itself, is a crisis-prone um, object objective within it, where it, it creates these it creates these bubbles that um, blow up and create you know housing speculation in Sydney or say um, the private loaning in um, America during the GFC where we saw a huge bu- a huge real estate bubble bust and a lot of people um, lose their entire livelihoods mm. um, in relation to it. But what's, I mean, so within within that concept, capitalism, if it was, if it knew, if, if the people in charge were sticking to that as a kind of fundamental theory, they would see that this system is not sustainable. But neoliberalism, what it does is it, it, it takes these, Ideas. It takes these moments of um, crisis and uses them as excuses for getting rid of more people, getting rid of more obstruction. It goes, mm. that didn't work because of these reasons, not because it's un- unsustainable, but because there wasn't enough free capital. There wasn't enough open. There's too much regulation. There's too much holding this up. So it uses every crisis as an excuse to open up the market further, just th- thus extracting more um, capital. And that's generally... 
this, the common infrastructure. It's the, it's the things that we own collectively um, as a society that then get redistributed and sent to, you know, a mm. political and um, economic elite. And I mean, that's all kind of, you know, this is all economic rhetoric and it's kind of boring, but I just felt like I wanted to kind of open up my own conception of how that is and how that intersects with, with every day because it's, 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 it's a pretty complex and kind of contested issue and I, I don't know, I just wanted to throw my hat through my... No, I think it's important. Um, you know, I think it's really important. I'm somebody who, um, you know, is just starting to recognise a lot of the stigma that I have attached with how I think about money and how I handle money. Mm. And, um, you know, I really think it harks back to the slavery that has happened in this country um, and, you know, our positions in, in that, um, you know, because we share a lot of commonalities with descendants of slaves throughout the rest of the world. But what happened here, you know, hasn't really been allowed to be called out for what it is which is slavery um you know so i think this is a really important conversation and a lot of links um you know that a lot of people don't necessarily think about because of these stigmas and this conditioning that we've had um again to keep us poor Mm. um again to keep us landless again to keep us dispossessed and um uneducated and isolated Hmm. And these are all tools of colonisation. This is how they do what they do and how it works so well. You know, these people came here with really efficient tools. They had been practising these things for many hundreds of years. They had been invading and colonising each other for a very long time before they came here. They know what was up. They know the value of our land like we knew the value of our land, Hmm. which is why our people have fought so tirelessly. Hmm since they first came here. Yeah, and I mean, like, we're, we're currently existing in a political system that is um, obsessed with the idea of growth and surplus and mm. trying to get out of debt. Mm-hmm. And um, when you, you sort of stratify society within a, within a set of kind of quantitative mm. um, aspects, the goals that you need to achieve in terms of being... I mean, essentially what we've done is we've kind of completely... The common good of society is now actually deprecated it's below the idea of the actual market stability mm-hmm. of a nation um instead of a kind of a, a poll of the populace on how we're going we're going off of the quarterly um receipts that we find with with our major investments in in, in, in banks or, or, or our resources and so then you know how do aboriginal people navigate um, through all that, how do they navigate um, when we're inheriting debt mm. rather than inheriting monetary value like a lot of non-Aboriginal people have had access to, you mm. know, and this is why we talk about these things and why we call for people to educate themselves so that they know where they sit in this bigger picture. Um, and, you know, it's always reminding people about the bigger picture and the smaller picture, the local picture, mm. um, which kind of brings me to our next our next um, recording, our mm. next interview. Um, so I, I've, I've been making jokes all week um, because I hadn't even introduced myself last week. <laughs> um, you know, I just got on air and just started talking like everybody should know me, um, which I find hilarious because in the black community, everybody kind of does know me. In New South Wales, everybody kind of does know my family because we, you know, I come from two very large Aboriginal political active families that have linked me and has become a part of a kinship structure that extends throughout that whole eastern seaboard of this country. Um, You know, but 
I am, my name is Lorna Munro. I'm a Radrick Milleroy poet and educator. Um, I usually like to leave it at that because if I really took time to explain all of the things and all the spaces that I've, I've brought knowledge from and bringing it, um, you know, to conversations, I'd be here forever. Um, you know, I've worked with radio um, as a young person um, with Koori Radio. A little shout out there to their, to their Young Black and Deadly programs, um, which was, you know, great mentorship, great traineeship. Um, I'm very privileged at the moment to be here at, in Skid Row, um, you know, especially in relation to what's going on, um, being silenced and not having space. You know, I've been talking about the most radical, some of the most radical things, one of the most radical acts is to give somebody who's been told to shut up all their lives a mic, <laughs> you know, that's probably one of the most radical things that you could ever do, mm. um, you know, and I really appreciate that I, I you know I don't want to go on further about myself but I've grown up in Waterloo or Redfern um, I've gone to, to Marawena I went to Redfern Primary I went to Cleveland Street High School which was then turned into Alexandria Park Community School all of these things all of these changes all of this gentrification has really happened in the last 20 20 years within my lifetime and I guess that's that's where I'm coming from and perfect segue into introducing the next person that we've interviewed which was also the same voice at the start of our intro which is my mother and um, fundamental to that knowledge base that you were just speaking about that's right um she my mother jenny munro um is has been quite well known in the last couple of years because of her stance um, against gentrification, against a lot of the overdevelopment, um, really the person in this community asking big questions, you know, with a lot of these developments and a lot of these things that are happening. She's been someone that's been calling for accountability accountability for a very, very long time. Mm. Um, she was born on a Rambi mission. She's a Radri elder. She has been held many positions in this community and she's been here from you know a very young age um, coming from that mission you know on a Rambi and that lifestyle being managed by by white people every aspect of their lives you know literally breaking free from these concentration camps um, and moving to the city with mm. this generation of people that were looking for opportunity mm. and looking for education and looking to express themselves yeah. after they had been silenced for so long. Exactly. Um, you know, going back to that, the most radical act is is giving someone a mic. So and after touching on some of the stuff that we've just been talking about and in what you and Linda spoke about on the weekend and the conversation with Jennifer, like we we we're trying to begin to uncover and unpack for you guys and, and understand where we are now in terms of um, the 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 way in which neo, the neoliberal logic of the market currently within Sydney's rental, but also its foreign investment and these other things affect you, and we'll be covering more of that as we go deeper into the show, in in its in its next instalments. But I think it's important that we also we sat down with Jenny to to kind of unpack where where we how we got to here what it was like when she arrived to Redfern and, and what they were working with and, and what we think we should take from that knowledge. Mm. So we had a really great conversation with her and it's, it's going to be an extended play for you guys and I hope you guys really enjoy it. It's a privilege that you kind of get to sit in with that. I just want to acknowledge as well, just before we go into that, the legacy and the 
the legacy that I've inherited and the legacy that she talks about and the legacy um, that we have been talking about that wasn't necessarily kind of identified a name, but this legacy has gone back to the first acts of resistance in this country and um you know it's been it's been a mentorship you know we've we've heard that word a few times already so we're really going to learn from my mum about where she learnt how to be such a such a radical thinker and such a strong voice in this community yeah so we're just going to play that for you guys now um you're listening to radio skid row 88.9 here's an extended interview with jenny munro talking about the history of redfern and and what it's like to live there today mm, her place in it as well yeah what brought you first to redfern i finished high school yeah yeah so, so came down here was looking to further my employment really there was nothing that i could do here so the first thing we did when we got here was enroll at a tech course yeah um, try and get better marks for some of my subjects that I could I could do was a law of, degree. Was that out of here in Redfern? Or? Yeah, we were working here in Redfern at the time. So what was your first job? Um, book, bookkeeper for the medical service. Right. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? When did, how, did you get, how did you get that job? Uh, I just applied for it, I think. Yeah. Um, legal service was situated across the road from the medical service. They were, mm. they were really the only organisations that were had been established at the time, so it was them against the world, basically. <laughs> Which one was first? Was it legal service or AMS first? Legal service, I think. 69, the legal service, 1970, the medical service. And then you was here in 72? Yeah. What are some of the... So who are some people that really mentored a lot of young... Aboriginal people that were in Redfern at the time? Not only Shirley, it was probably the shining light for everybody. She mentored people. Um, she wrote the book on how to be a field officer before field officers. Actually, the term was coined as field officers. Only Shirley taught us how to do the jail visits and everything to talk to the clients in jail. So yeah. she taught us how to be field officers. Mm. Um, she did jail work for years. She had the gold pass into the jails. So she could walk into a jail and tell the governor, the boss, your services are no longer required for the day and he'd have to go because she had this gold pass. And she'd sit there and lord it over them all, see all the prisoners she wanted. And mm. He's my nephew, he's my nephew. Not, yeah, not having story. a direct blood skin relationship, but for the purposes of getting him out of jail, he was the nephew. Mm. She was a mad Roman Catholic, really, so the only thing me and my auntie disagreed on was religion. Mm. But she'd walk into St Mary's and abuse the bishop, swear at him like a trooper. But these are also the people that, um, that she... Fashioned this community. Well, but I'm, they I'm, assisted her, yeah. But I'm sure it's because of those conversations that, that she, she had, had with them. Yeah, she forced them to realise that, you know, this system was inherently racist. Mm. And so because of those conversations, we had um, space. Yeah, like the church up there where she stayed. Remember the presbytery before they... Before where, the, about, where, before our where listeners? the medical service is now. There used to be the presbytery, right? And that's where my auntie Shirley stayed and the, the nuns from the presbytery um, originally. So that's how she got access. She lived in the presbytery. There were two nuns that drove her re- religiously anywhere she wanted to go in the country. 
father Ted Kennedy who assisted her greatly in a lot of stuff so that was the process of acquiring space there in Redfern and today that site is where the medical service yeah. currently sits yeah. so this kind of culmination of kind of all this activity in the, in, in the area there was this kind of mobilisation of Our people. It, yeah, everyone coming I mean, together in yeah. there was a lot of people here early you know, like sixties, early seventies. We there's a charged. whole generation of our people that had yeah. gone through school in the country towns, no work for them in the country towns. So there was a gravitation mm. to Sydney for work mm. first, yeah. Mm. And so they kind of had this, yeah, this kind of melting pot of people from all over mm. the place concerned with these mm. kind of larger the population issues. here in, in Redfern in the seventies was about forty thousand black people. Yeah, I've heard you say that before. It's, mm. it's a, so like, can you imagine that? Just walking the streets, there was yeah. always a black fella somewhere. You yeah, know, there you were when you. You see the footage, like you yeah. said, the archival footage. Yeah. It's just like it's a blackout. A, a, yeah, there's black families everywhere. Um, yeah. in the street, in the shops. You look at eighty eight. The numbers of that eighty eight march, they were, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand. We were getting marches here in the 70s with 10, 15,000 easy, just mm. black fellas without counting the support. Mm. 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 And that's why that political stuff was ratched up, those extra mm. marches, because there was the numbers here, we could back it up. Police wanted to come and raid the pubs, there was a pushback. Mm. This understanding of the sort of the inherent racism, racism. within the institutions mm. and sort of the reaction that the community had was starting their own mm. and, and their own organisations too. Yeah, real estate agents were the worst at that time. You couldn't rent yeah. off anyone, especially when you presented. As soon as they saw you, property no longer available. Mm. So the, the real estate was probably one of the really obvious racist institutions. The hospitals were really racist. The police are still mm. as racist as they mm. were then. They're just better at covering it up. Exactly. Yeah. This kind of also leads on to another these kind of these first these these institutions starting up out of these direct needs and then mm. sort of the other things flowing on from that. So we've got things like really radical things like marijuana. Mm. Well, they yeah, they were direct flow on effect. The housing company establishing yeah. the housing company establishing marijuana. So marijuana was another. Um, a, um, you know, I I know this, but again, um, having to kind of you know like talk about this um, for an audience that doesn't really know all of this Mm. sort of stuff. So um, I just wanted to talk a bit about um, marijuana and how radical that was at the time and still is. Um, Joel, you know, was another alumni, Mm. marijuana alumni, you know, so I think it's it's just a really interesting for us doing this project and then going back and actually looking at where where our journeys and and learning journeys have crossed over, you know, with that place there and what it represented, and coming from the Black Panther breakfast programs that were happening at the moment too, and just talk yeah. a little bit about. Well, the pro the marijuana started as a breakfast program in Georgina Street, right? And it wasn't the women that started it; it was men. Uh, your uncle was involved in it. Uncle Paul, Foley, maybe Gary Gary Williams, and Aunty Shirley. So that developed, they'd do breakfast for the kids because, you know, it, it was understood by our mob back then. If you wanted kids to go to school and learn, you had to give them a good breakfast, you know, otherwise they're listless, listless in the classroom or just not engaging. So that's where that came from. And I think it's now 
embedded in every um, state education system where, you know... Early childhood early learning children, centres. Yeah, yeah, well, that came from us, not mm, from them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they take a lot of our ideas over the years and call them their own too. Mm. So there's yeah. still, still theft. Absolutely. Of everything, even yeah. our intellectual property, they try and steal. So. And co-opt those yeah. kind of successful, yeah. the things that work really well. Yeah. That was that. one of the best things, you know, setting up the preschool because it actually gave our kids a grounding in our culture before it sent them into the Western system where that, you know, is based on a completely different concept. And I think that's what... And I think you will agree that gave you an extra level of strength as a mm. child growing up. Definitely, yeah. definitely. It was, you know, mm. I still think about it, mm. you know, even though it's no longer there. Yeah. And that's the thing that we're reminded of continually. But I think... Well, I think people out, we've got to start making our own people accountable for mm. their mistakes. Which is why what we're doing here on the Survival Guide is so important, is to be able to identify these things. We're quite knowledgeable and mm. all this sort of stuff, but this is exactly the reason why we're creating this, mm. this, this program. Um, mm. Was because you know, if we're if <coughs> we're ex- exposed to these things, we're knowledgeable about these certain things. We know how to research and follow paper trail. Mm. And if we don't understand how spaces like Marawina have been have been acquired acquired and also then eroded in those other ways the way that it's been kind of taken back i think is what you're trying to Mm. also get to is just how you just mentioned before it's like it directly to me it's like being in that space was so foundational Mm. and is and and did give so much strength and and understanding about some about that stuff Mm. and that's what's truly radical about it and that's Mm. i think that's why it was so important and yeah, with the show, what we're trying to do is look back on these these experiences and these relationships, and looking at how it's exactly mm. that. It's only it's only the indigenous perspective and the indigenous mm. body mm. that is used to navigate this land and this yeah. country, and mm. that those things are co-opted. Those things are used. Mm. But how are we going to go forward when things are as bad as they are now? in these communities mm. without looking back on this history and, and, and understanding, understanding this. how we got to the point we yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. And, and and I think that there's and this is probably this is way easier for me to say being someone who's only looking at this from a historical mm. perspective and, mm. and listening to listening to all these important stories but you know it's not there in the 70s mm. and this this build up of a community that would, and the organizations that formed out of that need mm. that community was <coughs> when when these things were happening at the time was there was there a longer term strategy of of, of building Just other businesses sure around got, that and making sure we got those bases community based organisations yeah. established and consolidated in the community mm. um, like the, with Marawina the breakfast program evolved into um, their first place there at Shepherd Street and I think that was run voluntarily originally and then they got funding over the years. Um, Wayside Chapel was a big assistance. They provided the breakfast for the kids at Georgina Street at the time. So there were a lot of groups that really worked together and did, worked well together, mm. I think. Yeah. Mm. What, what made Marawina so radical within um, Aboriginal education is um, is the early early introductions into learning um, 
with Aboriginal methodologies mm, and epistemologies, our yeah. ways of knowing and our ways of holding knowledge, mm. even our kinship structures were very much re, um, well, it was replicated. It, it? But it was a system that recognised that kinship system and was able to cater for it. You know, like you didn't call them miss, you called all the mm. teachers auntie, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I realised some of them aunties ain't actually my, my blood and that's because of the the relationships mm. that were being formed at Marawina mm. and the specific educational model that they were creating mm. at that time mm. that has been hijacked and used nationally mm. um, but also um, the business model well the business model uh, you can't get a better example of a successful business model when the legal service was established here in 72 it was national within 12 months. Medical service, same story. They were national within and this 12 to 18 months. So our mob, as they saw what we were developing here, saw the benefit for themselves very early in the piece and replicated it. Just right to take that back, because you know people in our generation cannot fathom, cannot comprehend that that was possible without government funding. Well, it was possible because of the numbers, 40,000 blacks here at the mm -hmm. time. But we it was could, without no... But we could go over and take a government office over and they couldn't get rid of us. Isn't that what happened, though? That's what happened, That literally, is what yeah. happened? <laughs> literally, they couldn't get us out of there. They, we had to, so what was that building? Our, so our demonstrations actually changed all the internal security on all the government buildings. You could walk in the door and see somebody sitting at the decks before we came along. Now you've got that glass shield. Coming off the back of looking at these kind of... These these organisations, these institutions, mm. it's like they're, they're, this became, I mean, this, I think I see it as this became sort of the central kind of, kind of infrastructure for the developing of other Well, the services. concept of self-determination was exactly. really the one that was foremost in all of our minds, exactly. that we had the right and the entitlement to, to decide and create mm. institutions for and by ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Which was, which which was the community-based organisation, yeah, yeah. which once it started, it just went like wildfire right around the country. And, so um, and you can see that not only with legal service and medical service, you could see that with preschools when they were established. Marawina was the masthead of the black preschools. Um, black housing theater, companies, arts. housing company, that, mm. that this one here was the model for all the housing companies. Uh, Do you feel at some point, though, that these these... The momentum behind these was then, in a sense, eroded by whether it was money or, or other issues around the way that these these kind of businesses... Well, no, I think it wasn't money, it was personality. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that we'd done so much within a radical movement, and you have to remember those people that were um, standing back and criticising us I mean, it was shameful, some of it. We'd have marches, we'd have 10,000 people in the street marching down, you'd have a black fellow walk out of a pub and go, shame, trying to make us feel bad about marching for our rights. I mean, that was the ideology of some of the very conservative people in this mm. community. Mm. And what they, they don't get out on the streets and march. They're not by nature radical people, but they will sit back and fire bullets all the time. So that's what happened, you know. You had mm. conservatives coming in after we'd established those bridgeheads and trying to take them over, and a lot of the times they were successful. And so there's, there's so the, the creators of the organisations, the dreamers and the visionaries, 
were pushed out. They had a different idea, maybe. Well, the neocons was, let's lick how many white asses and see what money we can get for having shit on our tongue. Mm. Mm. I guess this is where we're trying to tie this into this conversation around yeah, black, well, black yeah. economics and other mm-hmm. things. Neoconservatives there... don't get out and demonstrate. That's not their nature. But they take advantage of all the advances that the, the radicals do mm. by stabbing us in. Once we've created the bridgehead, stabbing us in the back and taking it over. Mm. And, and that's happened with every community-based organisation that we created. And seeing how those can then operate within a capitalist system without the the um the really the real principle in the real principle the authenticity authenticity or the or the or the the long game in mind is personal gain which is very much which is like name your price exactly exactly so I, i don't have a price and i think that's the that's the truly radical point that I think we're both getting at with this stuff is when you're talking about a about an idea of black economics it's 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 contrasting to well, it's it's this just the very system. thought is radical in nature, mm. and yeah. to exercise that thought and create something, oh my God, that's revolutionary. Mm. Mm. So we recognise, you know, our generation, you know, well, everyone, everybody would, but I guess reparations wasn't a big catch cry of your generation. It was land rights, self determination of land rights, yeah. Um, and I just think that a lot of people, like we, we, we've been. We understand the process of treaties. We've looked at treaties, the the many many treaties that were broken with Native American peoples. We've looked at the Waitangi Treaty for a very long time. Part of our brief when we were young, and what only Shirley taught me is don't open your mouth until you know your business, because you had to learn that. We were very interested in uh, and engaged with the Black Civil Rights Movement at the time, Native American Movement at the time and our Maori brothers and sisters, they actually came and learnt from us things that we were doing in the early 70s and um, modified their system in Aotearoa, for example, just learning one language, one tongue, instead of all the dialects. Mm. So that's something they decided as a consequence of coming here. Mm. And I guess also coming to that, to the point you made before about this kind of this, this, this neoconservative idea or neoconservatives kind of infiltrating the organizations and, and that and that ability to be sort of manipulated by what is kind of the the, the whole emphasis the whole idea around capitalism mm. and what is now kind of the neoliberal thought of completely doing away mm. with any sort of organization mm. at all and it is very I mean, if you talk to people in the 70s if you called them a socialist it was like you were swearing at them and when we tried to say, hey, you know, your so-called socialism around the world is really not very good examples. We are the pure socialists. If you want to learn about socialism, mm. come to us. Mm. 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 So it's it's almost like it's a it's it's a it's this kind of damned awful, if you do, damned if you don't. It's this convergence of this mm. sort of these people who are who are willing to live within the markets, kind of. Di- well, I, I just call them indoctrinated blacks. Exactly. I'm sorry, Dave. Fallen from that, fallen for the false arguments of the invader. Looking at what is now maybe a market for, um, you know, black entrepreneurship in this mm. in this system, um, we we see groups of people, you know, um, and I'm not going to name anybody directly, but there there are now companies or groups or indigenous-run groups that are espousing values around cultural competence or conversations around. Um, understanding of cultures but for 
very for white people exactly for direct for direct personal yeah, but gain that's not on their cultural point. competence mm. teaching your culture to another group and if they're so ignorant that they don't understand it that means you're not a very good teacher boom <laughs> got it um, is there anything else that you want to comment mm, on? Who else do you want me to knock down? <laughs> well, I mean, the system's geared to divide us, all right? That's what neocons will do for their masters. Mm. And that's why they like eating shit. Mm. That's what you got to do, lick ass. Name a price. I have no price. I think, I think that that's the point. I think you've hit the nail on the head with that. It's, the system does divide, and I think we see that more and more... Um, looking at the way that you know we are now dealing with the complete deregulation of the welfare system that that is you know c- currently mm. underway, that the, the selling off of public land and all these other the things. The native title that is not any sort of title, <coughs> which gives the of... state miners anybody and everybody more rights to our land than we have. Bullshit! I'll wipe my ass with it and give you the shit to eat. Mm. <laughs> uh, um. That's great. I mean, yeah. we have to be architects of our own rescue. Mm. And that's what the neocons don't understand. Mm. Mm. Instead of trying to make it work here, it's... They, got no, they will do it within the capitalist mould all mm. the time. Money mm. as the be-all and end-all. Mm. Our system, money didn't have a place in our system at all, and we are still finding it very hard. 230 years later to understand money Mm. I think yeah I mean this is amazing because I think we're going to go on to have further discussions around what are the like what are you know what are examples of land being valued differently in any culture in and because there's so many there's so many different look at that let's just leave us leave it on this one sites in this country are older than any of the recognized sites as the oldest on the planet Mm. Ours is so much older. We didn't even get to ask you about um, the plans that the land council had with the building and some of the things for the future um, that you were trying to implement that's just been hijacked as well um, because that's a really important Mm. thing right now Mm. with our young people looking for space. Mm. That's what we keep looking. We keep creating all these deadly things, Mm. but what are we going to do if we don't have space to do them in? Land council now owns a day at morning site. They can be using it for community functions, they could be using it to rent to community organisations. They're not. They're not doing what they should be doing. But those were the the part of the plans to that use the building that you had implemented, mm-hmm. right? I remember we took the hall where the meeting was held in 1938 back to how it was in 1938. But the other parts of the building, we were looking to establish a club down there, for example, um, so that we could have. Uh, a venue in the city where our people can go to and not be harassed when we're imbibing in alcohol. Mm. And having office space. Mm. Office space, there's three floors there. Having places to train up, mm. um, you know, it's young Aboriginal people print within... This, print uh, the survival yeah, guide. Yeah, all of these things, put on shows, all this stuff. utilised to its full capacity, mm. full, full potential. They've got a huge kitchen in there, like there's heaps of things, but, you know... I. Uh, yeah, we could keep just going on and on and on, but, you know... Um, You're busy, we don't want to keep... Yeah, so if you want to just leave us with a last sort of comment, um, anything for... Because our whole show is about finding the tools to survive mm. gentrification, um. survive colonisation. How do we survive neo... 
liberalism. Mm. Um, so we go back to our culture as a base of strength, all right? What we were taught historically, culturally. Materialism is not a part of our cultural concept. So that's why we teach the, the dollar coin has the same value as the rock for different purposes. And, you know, our system of respect was based on how you assisted members of the community. They came back for you for advice, and if it was good advice, they'd come back again. That was the measure of respect for our people, not how much money you got, not how many people you ripped off last mm. week, last month, last year. Mm. So principle of who and what you are is the basis for all of this. If they want to be white, go and be white, but don't be taking two sides of the coin, you know, betting on both sides. Mm. Mm. You want to be white, be white. Don't tell us how to be black. But don't tell us how to be black. And please, if you want to know how to be black, you need to come to the people that had the vision and the dream from right back there in the 70s and got stabbed in the back so by, badly by the neocons. Mm. Mm. And they will destroy anything that is not in their image or their per perceived image. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Culture for us is not, okay, you can come and have it, we're giving it to you over and over again, like the welcome to country personify for me. We're just making that same mistake all the time. We didn't welcome them then, so there's a lie there. You know, they were resisted when Cook landed. They were resisted again when the fleet came out. But they were, the white people were prepared with chemical warfare when they came. They did the same to Native Americans, so that's why we empathise so much with Native Americans. I mean, look what they did with the black slave trade. You know, transported them from one point of the world, halfway around the world, for the convenience of white people. You know, they wouldn't even go up in Queensland. It was, the sun was too hot for them to go out there and plant sugar. So that's why they created the slave trade from the... The islands, mm. you know? So fragile. Sorry, but, you know, if you can't stand the sun, stay in the shade. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I've got to go. <laughs> We've just played a long cut of a interview that we did with the one and only Jenny Munro um, last week talking about a huge amount of things, but really just trying to get our heads around these ideas that we've been talking about this episode, which is kind of looking at, you know, black economics, but the kind of ongoing and then how that interacts and intersects with the kind of ongoing colonisation and, and the sort of the capitalistic and, and neoliberal sort of ethics and, and, and um, morals around the way we treat money, property, retail, the things all around us and how we are complicit in that mm -hmm. system and how we need to be critical of it. Mm. I think it comes back to value, valuing yourself and place um, and valuing yourself and your place in space. Um, I've just been making notes and I was just talking to Joel while we were kind of um, vibing out there on some music um, and I was just talking about how money and time really messes with my head um, and I always like to put that down to these are foreign ideas. Mm. Um, you know, these are ideas that have been introduced to our people as tools to control. So it makes sense for me to lose my shit every time I feel like I don't have enough time to do the things that I have to do. 
Um, I don't have enough money. You know, I don't even like to handle money like like what was, you know, recorded in that conversation there. I literally hate handling money and will give it all away because I hate the responsibility that I have with that and the power that I have with that. I can't handle that. Mm. I have no way of navigating those things and that's because, again, you know, these are really, really new and foreign ideas yeah. that have existed in this country for 230 years. Mm. So, um, you know, we're still coping. Mm. And that's the road, you know, that's that, that's the kind of treacherous path that we travel. I think um, both Linda and you touched on that in the segment at the, at the top of the show where we were talking about how it's, um, you know, there are benefits. There are benefits to being um, engaged in, in this model and in this system. And as a black father, you need to realise that that's, kind of a part of colonizing yourself mm. um mm-hmm. and there's also there's there's not that you you know we're not trying to espouse that you need to just like throw away all your all your belongings and start the revolution um even though Do that it. that could Do be it. good um we're kind of you just have to be critical of these things around you because you like like we've tried to kind of open up today is it's hard to really draw the line at where you know what you're doing is wrong in your own complicit nature in the systems that are kind of doing other people harm as well. Mm. I think we're all connected to um, long lineages of suffering and oppression mm. um, and not just our own historical ones but the, ho- the history of the items in your bag and in your home mm. also have blood on their hands. Um, not to be that depressing. But for real though, mm. like, um, you know, and that's what it comes back to. You know, we're also inheriting a huge legacy as um, colonised people, but as people have been colonised that have resisted since invasion. Um, and that's what it comes back to as a school of thought that we are being mentored in, that there has been a mentorship since those warriors contested the landing of, you know, the endeavour. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, it all comes back to that. And I think that how, you know, how often do we get to think about these? We do because we're in these academic spaces. We are trying to eat up huge issues to be able to spit them back out so that somebody else might find it palatable. You know, and that's real disgusting. And as you may have seen from my mum, she's very literal um, with her words and I can be too, you know, and I guess that's something that I've, I've taken from her. But again, you know, we haven't had the privilege to dance around mm, stuff. Mm. You have to call it what it is. You have to name it what it is because how much time do we have to waste? Mm, how exactly. many generations are, are we going to watch go through this two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back because they're in the middle of a cycle that they have no tools to be able to identify mm. and they have no tools to be able to na- navigate and get out of. And all of these things are ways that our people have counteracted this mm. and this is why this is worth re-looking at it definitely definitely and i think the other point to make from that is that there's power in is power in acknowledging that there are there there is something to draw strength from from the the, the stories connected to this country that predate settler colonial yeah colonial settlement and this oppressive kind of structure that we live in today and that we are re-experiencing um every day through gentrification and other kind of microaggressive and overtly aggressive oppressive natures of this colonial um state Mm. that you know there's that it's it's all made up it all came here but 
there was other shit going on before that and there can be new shit at, after this it's 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 using your own criticality and your own idea and hopefully we can embed in this for you mob uh, a, a set of tools and a set of understandings to be able to realize what is important and what is not and that these things can be changed like what what work needs to be done mm-hmm. from this point now mm-hmm. so that we can kind of change these systems i think in the middle there when I was kind of talking about the relationships that um, neoliberalism has to the kind of built environment as well as just kind of structurally giving it a definition, what's really interesting about that is that because it is this sort of contradictory beast, it's this thing that runs off kind of a capitalist logic that, 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 would, that would infer that efficiency is key and that um, crisis is a bad thing but still ongoingly creates crises that it uses to open up things we can react to that and we can we can make decisions as communities um, mm-hmm. and, and decisions against these things to mobilize against that we have the power to do these things and we're trying to we're trying to inform ways that we can do this differently and, and it opens up some really interesting questions around what's what's a different way for us to value land what's a different mm-hmm. way for us to value story culture these the, I mean all of those things are really embedded in the same stuff when it comes to country like they are Mm. how do we how do we as young indigenous people as well as learning from our old people and learning from the ones around us who can mentor us in these ways how can we take these ideas forward and not sell them and give them to people but use them to structure a better more communal sense of the way that we live and the way that we can work together because we're gonna have to figure something out because it's getting worse, you know. I, like, I think it comes back to the lessons of our, our elders, and it comes back to serving community. If you're serving yourself, then you know you need to rethink your positions. You need to rethink what it is you're doing. You need to rethink where you're investing your time um, and energy, and um, really take a look at you know your relationships around you, um, because all those things don't mean a thing unless you're valuing yourself. And I just wanted to bring it back to the human cost. And I know I mentioned this before our show and I just really wanted to mention this because, you know, this is what all of this, all of this theory that we're talking about really looks like. Um, and I just wanted to to acknowledge and um, mention, you know, I wanted to acknowledge the death of a homeless person in our community um, that has that has been... Because of garbage trucks, uh, drivers probably stressing out because they have time schedules that are impossible to keep. They have all these pressures on them from their bosses and things like that. Um, And they're not worrying about a homeless person that could be asleep on the street. And this is what neoliberalism um, eroding black economics and eroding community structures looks like this is potentially where these conversations are going is the human cost of all this and I just wanted to mention and acknowledge that person you know within proximity of what's been going on in the community and that that has happened in the community and who is going to be accountable for that who is gonna who's gonna answer that person's family you know, when they have to now come up with $50,000 to bury that person. Um, you know, and this is what it comes down to. So when we're talking about all this huge theory, all these huge concepts, it's always so important to relay that back to what's going on mm. in exactly. our backyards, exactly. you know? What's and going on in our relationships? What's going on people to people? And that's, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a really, that's a really valid point and I think that that's something that we can all kind of deal with and try and contemplate now. 
in relationship to our own engagement with this system. I mean, like Jennifer said earlier in her interview, we're all complicit in this system of convenience and the convenience that brings you brings you your garbage truck once a week and does not think about what's going on because the person who's driving that garbage truck has to work two jobs just mm-hmm. to make it, just to, just to feed their kids mm-hmm. probably or just to get by, is so stressed out and is thinking about so many different things that there are these openings for this negligence and who's culpable. But mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it, that's the problem. The system has uh, actually shedded its responsibility. Um, in relation to the social aspects, which are external to the market now. They are in, in fundamentally externalized from a neoliberal idea of markets. It, it, the worldview is now centered around quantitative regulation, around um, the way that we maximize accumulative numbers of money or resources and things like that. And that puts quality of life and human cost outside of that equation um, for the lowest price. And that's that's an issue that we're coming into right now. And I think that's probably a good point to leap off from this one. We're going to be talking to you about a lot of interesting stuff over the next couple of weeks. We've got the next show next week. Um, We're going to be doing kind of an overview and a conversation and a deeper look at what's going on in Waterloo, but also the kind of more city-scale plans that are at play at the moment and the way Mm -hmm. that those things have incorporated and co-opted indigenous knowledge systems and other things and sold them back to us like they're some new innovative idea when it's like motherfuckers you got here not that long ago oh all people taught you that oh right that's right yeah um you know and it harks back to very much how colonization has existed in this country you know we've been removed from space that we identified Mm. to them in the first place Mm -hmm. um and it always keeps coming back to that and again you know even waste, the whole system and business and organisation around waste is something that's foreign mm. because our people didn't chuck away things. They always had found another use for them. Mm. You know, we had sustaining, self-sustaining, functioning societies that have been functioning for many thousands, again, if not millions of years. So why are we, why are we looking for answers in all of these other places when we have always had the answer right here. Yeah. Which give us is... the keys. <laughs> Just give us the keys. We know what we're doing. We'll, That's you know. it. Let I us decide don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trying to learn and, you know, just give give, every, give give the people who are from here the keys because they might have a better idea than you. Well, that's it. You know, look at where we are after everybody else has made the decisions for us. Yeah. Give us a go. 230 years of other people deciding these things, look at where we're at. Could you imagine where we could go in the future when we decide where our lives can go. And that's these are the tools and tips that we're trying to equip you with going forward on Survival Guide mm. here on Radio Skid Row 88.9 FM every Friday, mm-hmm. one, uh, 12 till 2. And I think we're just going to wrap up. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for listening. Um, we'd like to thank uh, the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the University of Sydney for making this possible. Also, we'd love to thank Radio Skid Row themselves, all the wonderful people who work here, our producer, Hannah, Nicola, who we got to speak with this week at University of Sydney, who said some really lovely things that almost made me cry um, in front of everyone, which is a real shame. <laughs> About our first show, which was very nice. Um, I wanted to mention Linda Kennedy. A big thank you to your panelists as yeah. well for initiating and continuing such a such a valuable um, conversation. I wanted to mention my mom as well. Big thank you to mom for always just letting us come and pick her brain all the time, all my life. Such a deep, <laughs> deep well, and amazing resource, and such a 
a stalwart and um, interesting kind of grounding perspective as well. Mm. Just, I mean... And she's still there. She's exactly. still there doing that in the community. Exactly. You know, I, I, I just want to just stress how important it is to stay black in amongst all of this and just to value yourself and value your blackness. Definitely, definitely. Well, I mean, the system's geared to divide us, all right? That's what neocons will do for their masters. Mm. And that's why they like eating shit. Mm. That's what you got to do. Lick ass. Name a price. I have no price. <laughs>